The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Let me tell you about Donald Schmidt, the six-time best-selling author and the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years, a co-founder of the world-famous International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell. He serves there as an advisor to the board of directors, an internationally known investigative journalist and a darn good one and lecturer. His first book, UFO Crash at Roswell, was made into a Golden Globe-nominated movie called Roswell. Don, welcome to the program. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Well, thank you, George, and it's always a pleasure to be back. Thank you so much. You are, my friend, one of the giants of ufology. Well, those are, considering the people that I have been most influenced by, the late doctors J. Allen Hynek and certainly our dear friend Stanton Friedman. Oh, gosh. I still have big shoes to fill, but... uh, we strive every day to uh, make them proud, I guess. I'm going to have you talk about Stan and Heineck uh, as we uh, go through this hour. I have to, to tell you Love a to. great story. I got into broadcasting at, at a young age because I wanted to unravel the stories you've covered in your career. I wanted to do UFOs and ghosts and things like that. So at 21, while I was still going to the University of Detroit, I got a job as a radio reporter at a radio station in Detroit, a pretty significant one. In my first interview, I I noticed a little clipping in the Detroit News that says, ufologist and nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman will be speaking at Oakland University to a group of business people about UFOs. And I saw that and went, oh, my God, i got to cover this. So I went to my news director and I said, please, let me me cover the story. And he said, I'm not going to pay you overtime to cover UFOs. If you want to go, go yourself. Well, I did. And I interviewed Stan Friedman. He was my first interview when I was 21 years old. Now let's jump ahead. A couple of years ago, Columbus, Ohio, we're doing our live stage show. Stan's one of our special guests on the program. He looked great. On his way home, he dies at the airport. And of all the places. Why, my uh, God. My God. I mean, not to be with his wife or even anyone else of close uh, personal association. But he still went out doing 
what he loved to he, do. He did. And I was, now this is what's ironic. He was my first interview. Yes. And I was the last person to interview him. Precisely, as though it was meant. It was destiny. Yes. But yes, what, yes. what a ufologist. And uh, he, well, he and, meant and, the and, world to you. Well, and he, and he did. And I, and I know there were times that, uh, well, sure, but that's what, you know, people that are, you know, investigating a mystery where you don't have any answers, there's no such thing as an expert in UFOs because we don't have those answers as of yet. And you're going to butt heads. You're going to, you know, disagree. But that's what kept it so, you know, exciting because at the end of the day, we still were friends and colleagues and our investigations, you know, we'd, we'd often, you know, would share a microphone or a camera, and we'd always agree ahead of times, you know, we only are going to, you know, cover common ground. We're not going to disagree on camera or anything. And uh, he was a total gentleman. And just like Heineck, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't think, now what would Alan, what, what would Stan say in this situation? A- absolutely. And uh, when Stan started investigating Roswell, of course, and you were part of that, uh, well, no, actually, uh, in my case, it would have been with, with Kevin Randall when we started out. It would have been 11 years later. Later, okay. Yes, yes. Did, did Stan have an influence on you? Oh, absolutely. But I was a, I can't emphasize enough, George, I was a skeptic. In fact, even when the first book came out, that in many regards, you know, Stan received little acclaim where he did, he was the primary investigator. And he was only acknowledged in the, the book Roswell Incident by uh, Charles Berlitz and William Moore. And Stan was doing a talk in, uh, I believe it was Lakeland College in northern Illinois. And I was there with, with Stan and um, even afterwards backstage. And at the Center for UFO Studies, we were talking about going down to New Mexico and uh, you know, proving that this was a weather balloon device that the mm-hmm. government still maintains after all these years, or something else conventional. And uh, I asked Stan, do you, do you feel you've interviewed all the witnesses? And he went, oh, my God, Don, Don, no, 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 no. I'm sure, he said, I'm sure there are hundreds of people that we've yet to uh, locate. And I asked, how would you like some help? And he could not have been more encouraging. And it's like, Don, you, if you guys want to take a swing at it, you know, we're running out of time. Uh, Stan was the one who coined the phrase, uh, we're racing with the undertaker. Exactly. And that's exactly, exactly. Where, we, where we were with the, uh, with, with the World War II generation. What was it, Don, that turned you around from being that skeptic? Well, both Kevin Randall and myself at that time, it was talking to the first-hand witnesses to the unusual characteristics of the wreckage, the debris, whether it was military, whether they were the ranchers, their hired hands, even their children who were involved north of Roswell. And their descriptions were, you know, identical about just how super strong the material was and weightless in their hands. And they were describing the fiber optics. And then when they were describing the memory characteristics, where it was the same super strong material, but you could fold it, you could crease it, you could crumble it into a ball, and every time you'd place it down, it would slowly unravel mm-hmm. right before your eyes to its original shape and size. And we're looking at one another and going, my God, uh, we have to treat this like it's the real thing, because if we're wrong, we're <laughs> you know, you're summarily dismissing the biggest story of the millennium. And from there on, we went where the evidence took us, and that's where we are today. 
And how did you get involved with Dr. J. Allen Hynek? Well, Hynek had observed some of my reports with the Area Phenomena Research Organization, where I had started initially, because both Coro and Jim Lorenzen, the founders of that particular group, were from here in Wisconsin. And uh, so I became involved with them after college, and then Hynek, uh, you know, observed some of my reports, and he invited me down to his home in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, he asked if I'd be interested in a few cases, and before I knew it, I was getting regular cases, and I was being invited down on a regular basis, and we spent many a trip together in the field. And what was sad about Dr. Heineck, who was even 10 years younger than, than, uh, than Stan was when he passed away, it was Heineck who was always lamenting, I'm an old man in a hurry, I'm an old man in a hurry. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything worse than feeling that there you are in your last years and you still have uh, a mission unaccomplished. Was he haunted by that swamp gas story from Dexter, Michigan? I wouldn't say so much haunted as he felt it was an unfair label. And because when Heineck, still working for Project Blue Book at that time, when he arrived in the Dexter Ann Arbor sightings in 66, when he arrived, the press just swarmed him. They wanted answers. They, they felt that the Air Force had already been covering up the entire situation. And there was only it was one particular sighting involving a farmer who saw a, a glowing orb, you know, over a marshland, and Heineck only intended it to apply to explain that one incident during that time. But to give you another example, George, Dr. Jalen Heineck interviewed an Air Force officer who was a witness to the entire series of sightings. And, and Blue Book totally scrubbed that. They would not let that one go public. But the swamp gas, yes, they loved that because uh, they felt that uh, Heineck would be stuck, you know, explaining that. And uh, obviously he was their scientific advisor. And as you described, he never lived it down. No. No, never did. I've always been told that it was the police officer Lonnie Zamora case from Socorro, yeah. New Mexico, that turned Heineck around and made him a believer. Totally. But before that, there was a slow evolution, and what Heineck especially was alarmed about, and he threatened to resign from Blue Book numerous times, and that was the fact that in the field, on the road, Dr. Heineck was constantly talking to military pilots and commercial pilots about their you know, aerial experiences. And when he would go down the Wright-Patterson to look through the monthly Blue Book files, he'd ask, well, where did that Where's this report? Where's that witness, you know, testimony? And he realizes he would say all the hardcore cases were going upstairs, that they were not part of the Blue Book system. And it was the Lonnie Zamora case in April of 64 that you had physical traces, you had the uh, Zamora witnessed as far as the two occupants outside the craft, and Hector Quintanella, who was the final director of Blue Book, as hard as he tried he couldn't come up with a conventional explanation. Heineck would say that as much as he tried to prove that case, he couldn't. That he had to accept that it was definitely a genuine UFO. Wow, that's fantastic. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. 
So follow the seven right now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can your savings weather an economic storm? Think about what you've put away for the future. Inflation can render cash worthless. Real estate can crash like in 2008. Economies built on a mountain of debt can fall like a house of cards. And there are very few physical assets you can invest in that can stand the test of time. Gold has withstood as a valued form of money for millennia. It's why people are flocking to it now and why Birch Gold is busier than ever. Through a little-known tax loophole... Birch Gold can let you convert a retirement account into a tax-sheltered IRA and physical gold. And the best part, it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket to make that change. To learn more, text COAST to 989898 and claim your free info kit on gold. Let me ask you this again. Can your IRA or 401k weather an economic storm? If not, call the people I trust, Birch Gold. Text COAST to 989898 and secure your savings today. Now, what did you think of the funeral director, Glenn Dennis, from Roswell? Well, they're mixed uh, impressions of Glenn, and we were able to determine that as Glenn Dennis, who worked at the Ballard Funeral Home in July of 1947, he did receive phone calls. There were calls from the base hospital inquiring as to what techniques could be used for the preservation of um, bodily tissues and fluids, which have been exposed to the elements, to the uh, desert climate for some days uh, at the time. And then there were also calls about child-sized caskets. And we spoke to the son of a contracted truck driver who would indeed go up to Amarillo, Texas, and pick up caskets. And he described that that's exactly what they did, that they needed to pick up a number of child-sized caskets. The, the part of the story of Glenn going out and meeting with the nurse and uh, that she described, you know, uh, a preliminary autopsy at the base hospital, we have serious doubts about because Glenn gave us the wrong name of the nurse, and we spent a lot of time chasing, you know, basically a phantom who never existed. Ah. Now, there was a nurse. Her name was Adeline Fatten. She was stationed at the base at that time. And she looked like a young Audrey Hepburn, as Glenn would describe, and she had considered going into the uh, sisterhood, into the convent, uh, before going into the Army uh, Nurse Corps. But uh, what it actually comes down to, uh, George, is that Glenn was you know, having an affair with that nurse, oh. and it was his way of covering it up. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Was that all he was covering up? Well... <laughs> <laughs> We, uh, we didn't have a chance to get a final deathbed confession with Glenn. The family pretty much protected him from uh, any further visits. But um, never, he never recanted on, on any of his original story. But it's just that uh, as investigators, we, we have to corroborate. We have to find uh, independent witnesses. Were there any Roswell witnesses, Don, who took lie detector tests? Not lie detector tests, because... We never felt it necessary because they weren't claiming to uh, be in possession 
of material that later disappeared, that type of thing. Uh, often we were dealing with elderly people that we just felt we didn't want to become interrogators. We were looking for the information, not their names, to be published, and, uh, and then looking for that additional corroboration. And for having interviewed between Tom Carey and myself, over 600 witnesses either directly or indirectly involved and the number of uh, sworn affidavits and uh, video depositions as well as deathbed confessions. Again, the testimony is unanimous that Roswell in July of 1947 did indeed happen. You and I both knew Jesse Marcel Jr., whose father apparently flew the wreckage to Wright-Patterson. Did you ever meet the father? No, no, and that was a, a, uh, something that I regretted much uh, as much uh, especially with Stan having been one of the principal researchers who did invest, uh, interviewed him. Uh, he he did meet him, yeah. Senior. Uh, Len Stringfield interviewed him. There were a number of reporters who had interviewed uh, Jess Sr., but uh, he, he often got in trouble, or at least people questioned, when he said he flew the wreckage. Well, it's no different than you fly, I fly, but we're just passengers. Mm-hmm. And he was. He was a passenger. It was on a B-29 bomber called Dave's Dream, that went out on Tuesday, July 8th, that flew to Fort Worth for that infamous weather balloon press conference with General Roger Ramey. And uh, it was just uh, Marcel just saying the wrong thing about, uh, or at least his being uh, misinterpreted what he, uh, what he actually meant. What was it that caused the government to change the story? Because the initial report was it was a flying craft, right? That it went down. That they had captured a flying saucer. And because when the rancher, W.W. Brazel, first reported the find that Sunday, July 6th, but he didn't go to the military. Now you're talking about the first atomic bomb squadron in the world stationed at Roswell Army Airfield at that time. They were the elite within the military where they selected the best officers, the best pilots, crew, doctors, nurses. It was a composite unit, and just the fact that they were the best in our United States military at that time. And Brazel, the rancher, he didn't go to the military. He went to the courthouse. He went to the sheriff, Sheriff George Wilcox. So it was the sheriff who then in turn contacted the base, and who should pick up the phone but Jess Marcel Sr. Wow. And he immediately went to the wow. courthouse, retrieved a box of the wreckage brought in by the rancher. He returned back to the base. Now, and keeping in mind, this is a 4th of July holiday weekend. Most of the base personnel are home on leave. Nothing's been reported missing. They haven't been testing anything. The, the skies are quiet. And then this rancher comes in describing this huge debris field that covered an area of almost a mile long and how this rose in importance from minute to minute because Mar- uh, Jess Marcel, he immediately alerts the very base commander, Colonel William Blanchard. Well, then Blanchard dispatches Marcel and a counterintelligence officer by the name of Sheridan Cabot to go check out you know, this find, this, this crash. But uh, Blanchard then contacts Washington. And he does it by first trying to contact his boss, General Roger Ramey, who was head of the 8th Air Force at Carsville Army Airfield in Fort Worth. Well, Ramey's home on leave himself. He's with family in Denton, Texas. And he speaks to his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas DeBose. Well, DeBose contacts Washington. And he, gets, he receives a phone call back 
from General Clements McMullen, who was Deputy Director of Strategic Air Command. The point being that Washington already knows about the crash late evening of Sunday, July 6th. And they have material in hand by late Sunday evening, July 6th, sent by Blanchard from Roswell. So this is a day and a half before the press release. And the point being, George, Washington is in on the press release. They had to acknowledge the fact that something crashed because it already had leaked to the press. Yep. And they first they created the straw man, they first built it up, and then they tore it down. Oh, and, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we were wrong. It's just a weather balloon with a radar reflector kite. And here are the parts. But here, and here are the pieces of the weather balloon. Yeah. I mean, I remember that picture of Ramey with weather balloon stuff scattered all over the place. That's right, all over his office floor. And uh, the very thought that this is what the people in charge of the atomic bomb, you know, misidentified as a weather balloon. First time and only time in history a weather balloon was ever misidentified as a saucer. <laughs> with caskets, right? With caskets, yes. <laughs> Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.